Welcome to the New Balances podcast. I am your host, Adam, and I have a very special guest with me. Uh, His name is Ed Condon. Ed of the Pillar Catholic, thank you for joining me tonight. Thanks so much for having me. So as I was saying uh, in the pre-show, I would say about 90% of the people who would listen to my show have no idea who you are. So this is a largely... Um, not overtly religious podcast, but it's just sort of personal stories and musings of uh, my own and the guests I choose to invite on. So if you would uh, introduce yourself a little bit to the people and a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, well, I, my sort of working backwards, I guess, uh, my, my current job and role is uh, I'm, I'm an editor at The Pillar, which is a Catholic news website that I started with my my colleague and friend JD Flynn uh, just over a year ago now. Um, we've we've got a a self-assigned brief of um, trying to do long form uh, investigative, uh, sure, but also long form feature journalism within the Catholic Church, which, you know, from a journalistic standpoint, I think uh, it's, it's certainly interesting to me as a Catholic, but also just as a constituency, you know, you people often tend to think of religious media as a sort of niche concern, but, you know, as, a, as I like to say, there's, there's 333 million Americans, more or less, and we have a lot of national media in this country, but there's more than a billion Catholics in the world. So when you're talking about relative size of uh, the demographic you're covering, the, the church is a big one, and um, there's no shortage of news there. Uh, prior prior to this, I was the Washington editor at the Catholic News Agency. I did that job for, gosh, um, about three years, give or take. And um, before that, I was a practicing canon lawyer. So I operated um, within the, the legal system, the internal legal system of the Catholic Church, which is actually um, the oldest functioning continuously functioning legal system in the world. Um, Oh dear. Sorry about that. Um, Note to me to remember to turn my phone off before we start recording a podcast. It's my bad and I apologize. No worries. Um, But anyway, yeah. So it's the oldest functioning legal system in the world. And, you know, the church has its own laws. It has its own code of law. Uh, it has its own courts. It has its own judges. It, it has its own lawyers. And so I operated in that uh, as a as a lawyer. You have to go to law school for that, same as anywhere else. It's a three year law degree. I I did um, some extra time on top of the normal sort of J, canonical JD, which is called JCL, license in canon law. Um, I did an extra year on top of that to to get my doctorate so that I could teach. Um, so I did that for a few years, which really gave me. Um, an interesting and up-close experience of the church's internal mechanisms, particularly in the Vatican, where I, I argued a few cases. And, and prior to that, um, I was in grad school to study canon law. Uh, and before that, I worked in professional politics in the UK, where I lived for the vast majority of my life. So I, I was there, I was doing, I worked for think tanks, I worked for members of parliament, I worked for political parties, I worked in campaigns. That was really my first career. Um, and I, I did that for a long while. And, you know, if that's sort of going, working backwards, sort of working forwards, um, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a career change going from working in professional politics in the UK to sort of doing things that were strictly within um, the interior life of the Catholic church. And, and for me, the real genesis of that was um, during the state visit to the United Kingdom of Pope Benedict XVI, who who came over now, you know, popes have visited the UK before, but those are usually what we call pastoral visits, which is the Pope isn't um, coming as the head of state of the Holy See. He's coming as, you know, sort of the chief shepherd of the Catholics of a particular country, in this case, the UK. But on this occasion, he came as in a, in a full state visit. So, you know, you meet the queen, you, you address parliament, that sort of thing. And he gave a, what was a fairly big and is still, I think, fairly famous address to the joint houses of parliament which I was able to go to with my wife and really um, the things that he talked about in that speech 
started me on my path to thinking about how I wanted to chart the rest of my career. I was in my late twenties at the time, you know, sort of as you do in your late twenties, it's sort of the, the last fork in the road, really you feel before, you know, you, you really need to pick a track and get set. And if you're going to make a jump, that's, you know, as you're what approaching do I want 30, to do when I grow up type exactly. of mentality. Exactly. And so, um, you know, that was the point where I thought, well, if this isn't what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, now's the time to be thinking about that. And that's what put me on the track to thinking about going back to school, going to grad school, studying canon law, which, you know, money winding road got me to where I am now. So at the time when you were working in professional ethics in the UK, were you a practicing uh, kick? Were you um, as Catholicism and your your faith life always been something that's been at the forefront or is it something that's sort of been there you didn't pay attention to was there on the weekends or? um i i was raised so i i was i wasn't born in the uk obviously i was born in chicago and i'd, I'd say the first 15 years of my life give or take i was i was a good cultural catholic and came from a good culturally catholic family um if that makes sense you know we we went to the local i went to the local parish school we lived in chicago we went to mass every sunday um, our life as a family had a Catholic rhythm to it. You know, we said grace before dinner. Uh, I, I don't know, at least in our household, that there was all that much more to it than that. It was just the thing we did, you know, it was, it was part of our identity. You know, it was, I, I don't know that I, and you know, not many 10 year olds can, I suppose, but I, I'm not sure I could have told you the difference and significance between um, a St. Patrick's day parade and you know a blessed sacrament procession you know they would have they would have all been part and parcel of the same thing for me it was just our cultural identity um for me i think i so i, I was never out of the church in that sense but I, I do there was a point in my life in my teenage years where i was not a happy young man i think you could say i i was prone to the same sort of teenage rebellion that's common to a lot of people but um, I was certainly doing it not from a place of sort of spirited adventure, but from a place of um, sadness, from, uh, of disaffection, of, of feeling there was a void in the center of life, which I think is very normal for people in their teenage years. And I was very lucky in that what I got when I was in that place and time of my life was I was invited to go to a series of adult catechesis at a Catholic parish. And you know, the idea of it is it's just uh, the parish was representing the faith for people who were Catholic or non-Catholic, Christian or non-Christian, but primarily unchurched, you know, people for whom um, the church and the faith was not something that was an existential priority for them. And the thing that I heard and needed to hear most immediately at that point in my life, and I think is still the thing I need to hear most clearly every day, is that God loves me. And that, I think, really marked the beginning of a different kind of engagement with my faith, with the idea of being Catholic, that it was not a ritual practice. It was not a, a cultural heritage, that this was about um, a, a relationship of intimacy and love with God. And yeah, I think um, I, I would call my, I've always been a practicing, so this is a long way of answering your question, but <laughs> I would say that the short answer is I've always been a practicing Catholic. I've probably been intentional about the practice of my faith uh, pretty much since uh, leaving high school, beginning of college, I think was the, was the key part of that time for me. As a longtime listener of your podcast with JD, going back to the days of the editor's desk, I know that your questions are never really short or succinct. They're <laughs> rather well expounded and thought out logically and presented uh, thoughtfully. This is the problem with a podcast like JD's and mine and being your own bosses is there's, I mean, it's part of the reason why we set up the pillars. We said we didn't want to have boundaries on, on our work and things, and we wanted to do things our own way. But the other problem is when you're your own bosses and your own editors, there's no one to say you nay when you, when you say, well, let's go that's long on you, this one. That's why you need a producer to tell you, uh, as you would say, nay, nay, moose face, or is that JD's <laughs> line? No, um, that nay, nay, moose face does make an appearance on our podcast quite often, but it's, um, uh, it actually, it dates from my dad's uh, softball team in Chicago when, um, before I was born and when I was a very small kid, <laughs> it was, it was something that would be hollered from the benches there. <laughs> uh, 
it's a bit better, I think, than the things that I hear on the softball fields here in Boston, Massachusetts. I, uh, in my part-time jobs, I uh, officiate games uh, uh-huh. for adult co-eds uh, who more or less are intoxicated when they get to me and trying to uh, officiate with them is usually not a good uh, endeavor because they don't know the rules of the game that well and they're drunk. So it leads well, to I make no claims to the sobriety of my dad's old team, but they do no, know no, the no. rules. <laughs> um, so something you'd mentioned about uh, being your own boss. So you and JD founded the pillar a little over a year ago. And um, when I didn't know anything was going on until I came to be a Friday and I refreshed my podcast newsfeed and I didn't see a new editor's desk. And I said, huh, something's, something's going on. I wonder what it is. And I checked the different social medias. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, the pillar uh, came out and I said, oh, this is interesting. So um, the pillar being the long form journalism um how was it conceived? How was uh, the brainchild come to be? Was it something uh, that you and JD said, uh, you know, we've had enough of uh, boundaries and what were those boundaries, if you can speak to that? And um, yeah, the floor is yours. <laughs> well, oh, gosh. Um, I know it's a loaded question. Well, <laughs> I, I think the best way of answering is, you know, how did the pillar come to be is it was a, uh, once we'd had the idea, it all kind of happened in a hurry. Um, but getting there was was a slow and indirect and not very, I think, deliberate or conscious process for either one of us. Um, you know, we've had a, I like to call it a working marriage. You know, we, people often, you know, because JD and I have spent for the better part of four or five years now, um, a sizable portion of each day talking to each other, either on the phone or in person. And, you know, people often say, you, you must be best friends by now. And, you know, what office is actually, no, we don't really have that friendly of a relationship, What we have is a very fraternal relationship. It's, you know, it's almost familial at this point. Um, and I mean, the immediate catalyst for me leaving my job um, at, at CNA was the JD left, uh, you know, in terms of what really crystallized the decision for me was I, I quit the day after JD did because I looked around and said, you know, um, working with him was really what made it possible for me to do a lot of the stuff that I enjoyed doing the most. And I wanted to be able to keep doing that. And then once we were both on the outside and thinking about um, what sort of a future iteration of that could look like for us, the pillars sort of happened very quickly. <laughs> you know, we didn't, we didn't have um, a lot of time. We, you know, we did the decent thing that most people do when they leave a job and they gave two weeks notice and it was over Christmas. And, you know, we didn't make a big public announcement about it or anything because, you know, we, we'd worked there for a number of years and the team there was largely a team that um, had been assembled around us or by us while we were there. And they were all our friends and, you know, nobody wanted to make uh, life difficult for them, certainly over Christmas. But, uh, you know, in that sort of between Christmas and New Year period was, uh, there was some furious brainstorming and coming up with a name and a logo and all that sort of stuff and figuring out how Substack works and can we make a go of this? And it all, it all came together um, in a hurry, but I think because we at an instinctive and emotional level knew what we wanted to do, which um. I suppose the best way of phrasing is we wanted to do whatever we wanted to do. And it was really a question of having confidence that that instinct wasn't necessarily wrong. And the things that we wanted to spend our time doing, people would want to read. And if we did it right, and we did it with the right intention, and we did it with the right spirit, that people would come forward and support it. And, you know, we, it was a jump off a cliff. You know, there's it's Catholic journalism is the same as journalism anywhere else, although it kind of sometimes seems to operate a year or two behind in terms of trends. But, you know, this is the, the sort of journalist leaves established outlet to go to Substack is, you know, by no means did we invent that. You know, we, we were following 
um, in the trail of some much bigger names and much bigger journalists who, who'd done that before we did. Um, but nevertheless, it was a bit of a jump off a cliff about, well, gosh, I wonder if anyone's going to subscribe to this thing. Um, and we were, you know, we were really shocked when we started on the first day and, you know, there was a, there was a lot more support there from the beginning than we, than we dared to hope. And, you know, uh, we're only a year into it. We're, we're by no means as big as we, as we need to be to make the thing what we want it to be, but we've been really encouraged by the growth and it's been, you know, it's been enough that we've got a year two, which is, which you know, is definitely phenomenal. Yeah, we're we're very lucky. Uh, well, I say lucky. We're not lucky at all. Um, it's down to providence, and it's down to um, people who've chosen to subscribe, and we're really we're really grateful for that. Um, but yeah, it's been, it, it's been it's a wild ride. One of the things that comes through the journalism uh, that the pillar puts out is there's a certain sense of fidelity to Holy Mother Church that you don't necessarily see in other outlets. Um, and it comes down to what I think you were saying about you and JD being your own bosses. The two of you are faithful sons of the church. You are not necessarily sons of Benedict or sons of John Paul or sons of Francis or whomever. You are sons of the church. And that comes out in how, uh, at least in my reading, in how you present uh, the findings, especially with the Vatican financial scandal, which I'm very curious now, did you take all of your whiteboards off the wall from your DC office? <laughs> I did not. Um, the, those whiteboards were not mine to take. And it would have been, a, it would took a long time to get them hung up on that wall in the first place. <laughs> it would have taken even longer to get them down, let alone out of the building. Um, but I have been able to successfully recreate most of those whiteboards in my home now. <laughs> Very um, good. I, I try and, and keep uh, it to a minimum. My wife, I briefly toyed with the idea of, you know, saying, well, what if I paneled a room in whiteboards, but that, how would that go? And that, that was a no. It did not go. <laughs> no. The wife uh, was probably prudent, you know, to draw the boundaries and saying no to the whiteboard walls. Yes. Uh, in the room opposite where I am now, the uh, the walls were painted chalkboard because the previous tenants of our apartment uh, was doing some sort of doctoral thesis and was writing on the chalkboard board paint walls, but it doesn't come off. You can't, ah. uh, the chalk just kind of lives there now. We've tried to scrub and everything else. Oh, is so. it a bit beautiful mind in there and, you know, equations? And uh, kind of, but they sort of tried to paint over it again and you know, now you can make out like welcome to our house type thing. The Wi-Fi password is uh, up on there. Uh, so not quite beautiful mind, but a little bit. A little uh, bit. The well, second thing is um, if you and JD had to very quickly sort of put the pillar together, how it just sort of came to be, and it didn't exist prior to you and JD uh, resigning from CNA. Was there a particular story that you were trying to work on that you were being told, no, don't? No, no. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, we, I, um, there's, you know, there's one of the things to think of it as, you know, a particular story that we were told, no, you can't work on that. No. I mean, if that had happened, um, if I'd been working on something, I thought there was a story that needed to be published. And I was told you can't publish this for whatever reason, I would have quit on the spot. You know, I think any journalist who has um, a, a sense of professional ethics would feel obliged to. Um, but, it, and it's not even about, I don't think, uh, I mean, every media outlet of past a certain size and certainly a media outlet that has either major donors or a board of investors or whatever else, you know, there, there, that creates a culture and it creates a culture that, you know, has soft expectations that I think, and I, and certainly know where I've worked was an exception to that, but also I don't think that's, that's unusual or necessarily sinister or anything like that. I think that's just part of the reality of the industry of media. But for me, I think the freedom that we have doing what we do now that I really enjoy and um, was a major attraction for me to having our own project it was not about doing things people had told us we couldn't do. It was about giving ourselves the time to give all the time we wanted to, to projects. So for example, on Vatican finances, um, if, 
if, as I was, you're editing a news desk, if you're running a, a bureau for a news agency and you have other you know, writers that you need to assign and edit their product and write your own stuff and everything, there's only so much time in the day or in the week that you can give to the kind of really deep dive, crazy hunting for detail that goes into, for example, trying to report on a financial scandal that stretches across five countries that I can think of, three languages, you know, all kinds of different corporate regulations, stuff like that. I mean, that, that takes a lot of time. And, and the other thing is, if you're working for a news agency, effectively a wire service, which is where I was working, there are certain expectations from your readers as well. You know, they're, they're looking to you for the daily, minute by minute, what is the news? You are self-consciously tied to serving the daily news cycle, which is a real thing and a real busy thing, you know, in, in the church, no less than in national politics or international affairs of any kind. Um, and so part of the, the joy of the pillar for me has been taking a step back from the daily news cycle. I think the hardest, hardest habit for us to unlearn when we started was to see something happening uh, sort of in the daily news cycle and break the habit of, well, we have to do something with that. We have to write it up. We have to make sure we have something up on that. And it took us a few weeks to sort of unlearn that muscle memory of, oh, something's happening. We have to react to it right now and to say, well, actually, no, we're not going to swing at that pitch. That, that was interesting, but other people are covering it. They're covering it well. We don't have anything particularly different or um, you know, novel to say about it. We don't necessarily think we can do a better job of reporting this than other people are doing. So we're just not going to cover it. You know, not to say that it doesn't matter, but to say that if what we're offering as an outlet is either a different and deeper level of understanding or news you're not going to get anywhere else, then we have to stay true to that mission and say, well, let's go find some news that nobody else has. And, and I think, um, I mean, it's a tremendous privilege to have that kind of freedom and it allows you to do things that you can't do if much of your day is tied up being reactive to the daily news cycle. Yeah, because then you become a slave to it to a certain extent as well. And you're not you able do. to do the long form things that you have to do, I think, in order to uh, for what you and JD and the rest of your uh, team currently uh, do and uh, work on and follow. You can't always do the reactive uh, bits to not that they're bits, but uh, the pieces that fall out of the day to day tree. You can't yeah. fall. And to be clear, the world needs both. And there's a market for both. I mean, people want to know, and myself included, people want to see a write-up of the Pope's Angelus address every week. The Pope wanted the people want to know what the Pope said in a given homily. That, you know, this is all stuff that has to be covered in a global news environment, particularly, you know, in, in the Catholic space. Um, and it should be covered, and there's an appetite for it. But for us, it was just saying that's just not the part of the of the news cycle that we're looking to cover, that we're, we're gonna do something different and we're gonna be driven by our own interests in this and not to be afraid of that instinct. To say that, you know, what is going on with the sovereign military order of Malta may not be something that's front on the radar for a lot of people, but- I would say for 99% of the world, it's probably not on the front of their radar. When yeah. I heard about it, I was very interested because Again, I'm a church nerd and I love the ecclesiology behind it, as well as the sovereign nature with which they've carved out for themselves within Malta. Yeah. And, and, and so for us, it was saying, well, you know, yeah, we're going to give a lot of space to this and I'm going to, you know, follow it everywhere it goes. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to take the time to build context within the order and really understand the process of what's going on there not just because it's an interesting story in the life of the church, although I think it's fascinating because it's actually, and I, you've started to see this in the last 24, 48 hours um, as the story starts percolating up in, in other major outlets, including secular outlets. It's like, no, this is actually a fascinating question of international law. And, you know, to, to have been able to be there, not just first, but by some distance, but also to play a part in breaking the news that has generated the rest of the coverage is fun for us. And it's, we were only able to do that because we're in a position to say, well, we're going to give this story the time it needs to, to flesh it out, which we may not have been able to do anywhere else. 
And I think you have a particular uh, set of skills with your previous uh, job in professional politics, as well as your canonical uh, law degree is being able to navigate those different um, international spheres of influence and trying to wade through everything. Being able Ooh. to succinctly draw up uh, and tell us lay people what's going on is, you know, extremely beneficial. Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I mean, JD and I are both canon lawyers, and we both, before we did anything in journalism, were practicing as canon lawyers. Um, we had different spheres of practice, but uh, you know that's what we were both doing. Is we were lawyers, and you know you mentioned earlier about um, us being uh, us having a, a sort of filial loyalty to the church, and not being you know Camp Francis, Camp Ratzinger, Camp JP two, whatever. Um, and and I think that's true, but the the way I th- conceive of how we cover the church is from almost a legal perspective that we take the church at its own word about what it is, what it teaches and what is true. And we work from there. So for example, on stuff like the Vatican financial coverage, we don't come at it with an editorial slant of this Cardinal's bad. This Cardinal is good. This is the sort of thing the church should be doing with its money. This is not the sort of thing the church should be doing with its money we're able to paint with a paint on a very neutral canvas. Cause we just say, well, this is what the laws of the Vatican city state say is legal or illegal. This is what the Vatican's own guidelines on investments say is approvable or not approvable and work from there. And I think having that as a, as a baseline for how to approach news about the church is really helpful. It's, it, it's a really easy compass to steer by. Is we just say, well, you know, is this is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is this right or wrong? Is this a departure from church teaching or is this in accord with church teaching? We don't have to consult our own opinions on that. We just say, well, what does the church teach about this? And if that's what the church teaches and the church isn't acting in accord with what itself says should happen, then that's that's a very clear discrepancy for us to lay out, if that makes sense. Right. And I think it's a great uh, measuring stick with which to, uh, you know, measure your own Uh, not slant, but your own reporting on it is saying, well, no, we have a very black and white codex that we're working with and let's see how it matches up with that. And if something goes against that, then let's look at where this went wrong and how can it be remedied? Or, um, you know, one of the things that I liked the most out of uh, quarantine was you and JD going to the law and I almost felt like there should have been some sort of bumper with an old Batman twist, like da na 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 na. Just it should have you know, gone into that because uh, someone who was a listener to the podcast um, back then and who has since become a bit of a friend, uh, and actually the, the same artist who designed the logo for the pillar for us in the end, he did a mock comic book cover of us with "To the Law." <laughs> He did, he did two copies of it, for one for JD, one for me, and he sent them both to JD, and JD has still to this day not given me my, my copy of it. He's got both oh. of them in his office, which drives me absolutely crazy. But yeah. I would imagine so, especially since it could have been lost in the fires that they had out there recently. Yes. Uh, not to make light of that at all, but um, the, uh, there was something else. The most fascinating... Okay, so uh, I'm going to digress a little bit here because... When I was in uh, seminary, we used to have a time of spiritual reading after uh, Vespers before we would go to dinner. And it was like 15, 20 minutes of spiritual reading. And I would take a, the code of canon law and I would read different pieces of it. And I, I would get side looks because I said, what are you doing? And I said, I just feel like I need to know what this says, because I feel like this is a good barometer for what we need to know as uh, ministers for the people because there are rights and responsibilities and I need to know what avenue to go down should I encounter a problem. And when you and JD covered during the pandemic that indeed a couple could be married during the quarantine by themselves outside of the church while you didn't condone it, it was legally possible. 
I think that was a, a big eye-opener for me because I didn't remember reading that uh, at all. And I thought that that was fascinating that the church really has thought of everything. If you're not able to get to a church, you can still legally be married within the law of the right. church. And, and it also goes to a concept of law, which used to be universal in the Western tradition, um, but it now really only exists in the church and very few other jurisdictions, which is the idea that it's not a question of writing a law for every circumstance, but saying we have a concept of natural law and justice that our own positive law flows from and is built around and helps support. So something like um, you know, a couple being able to get married if they don't have access to a church or a priest or whatever else for a period of time. Um, you know, it's not a question of the church sort of seeing around corners and predicting every eventuality, but it's a simple question of, well, what is marriage? You know, we think of in the church marriage as a sacrament, and indeed between two of the baptized, it is a sacrament. But sort of even at a level behind that, outside of and above the church and for the whole of the human community, marriage is something created by God as a function of the natural law. It's a human right that, you know, it, it's part of the natural state of humanity to have the union of a man and a woman that is open to children for the totality of human life, for the mutual benefit of the spouses. And so if you have a natural right to something, that right can't be taken away from you to serve administrative concerns, which is what we have in the canonical form of the church that says you have to get married in a church building and for, you know by a cleric a priest or a deacon who receives the consent in front of at least two witnesses you know all of these regulations are there and if you don't follow them they can result in the marriage not being valid in perfect circumstances but that these positive laws the church puts around the sacrament of marriage don't have the power to strip away the natural law right to get married in the first place and again, it's it's all about how you think about law. Is you know, is law just a question of a list of rules of what you can and cannot do that people have had to come drop, or is it an articulation of a natural concept of justice that's ordered to human flourishing because it's rooted in the highest good, which is God? It's absolutely fascinating. It's why I got I into it. I loved. I mean, the first contact I, don't I ever have the had. Brain power for law school, but it oh, is fascinating. I, I disagree. I you see. I, I arrived at Canon, studying Canon Law in grad school um, in two, as a product of two things. The first time I ever had contact with anything to do with Canon Law was I did exactly what you did, which is I was a, an undergrad student and I was studying theology and I ordered on, I don't think Amazon existed back then, um, but I Dating ordered yourself, on- Be careful. Yeah. I ordered on the internets as they were then um, a copy of the code of Canon Law because I was a Catholic and I knew there was this sort of rule book for the church, but I didn't know what any of the rules were. And I thought, well, maybe I'll have a better understanding of what the church is and how it functions if I read it. And I got it. And, you know, in the same way that if you order, you know, if you order a legal textbook from anywhere or you try and read sort of, you know, um, statutes as they're passed by legislatures, you know, you can understand some of it. You can understand the gist of it. You won't understand the legal nuance and the full application on it, but you can get out an idea of what's going on here. And I found that fascinating. And then when I was coming to do grad school, I had started uh, at a different time in my life, a master's degree in theology and dropped out partially because I ran out of money and I needed to get a job, which is how I started out in politics. Yeah. But also I just thought, you know what? I don't have a big enough brain for this. This is all very abstract. This all requires a lot of, you know, high concept thinking. And I thought, give, give me a nice, big, beautiful code to work with, give me, you know, give me some rules that I can read and apply and think around, you know, I just, it's, it's got a beginning and an end and it closes. <laughs> exactly. I, I, you know, I often think theology is often as much a, an art, a sacred art as it is a sacred science, whereas canon law is a lot closer to sort of engineering, you know, there's, That's a there's, fair, a, there's a mechanics assessment. to it. So I always say you don't need a huge brain to study canon law. You, you you need a mind for the practical and you need to be able to be able to think with the law. But I, I have no pretensions that it requires a superior intellect to say studying theology or philosophy. On the contrary, a, I made the choice for the exact opposite reason. As a student, I'm a couple classes shy of my uh, MA in systematic theology from Seton Hall. But um 
uh, also I left the Salesians and got married. So, and now we have a newborn similar uh, to you. So, you know, money is something that is a commodity to be cherished and we won't be uh, putting it towards uh, fancy wallpaper at the moment. Um, I'd like to divert a little bit and uh, go into uh, how you and the missus met and um, the a little bit and talk about that Genesis story and then the other Genesis story of how uh, your little one came to be. Because I feel sure. as one a vocation you and I uh, both share as husbands and fathers now uh, in a world that uh, day by day seems to grow less fond of a uh, husbandry and fatherhood uh, has less and less respect for it. How important it is uh, for these vocations to be not only advocated for, but publicly shared uh, for the world to see. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, as for how I met my wife, um, I met her the old fashioned way. Uh, we were the first two people of a, a wide sort of group of friends and friends of friends who arrived for a concert at the, at the Royal Festival Hall in London. There was a there's a jazz concert going on. And I said, I'd go along with a large ish group of friends that I knew and a bunch of people I didn't know. And my, um, I was the first to arrive and I didn't know exactly who I was waiting for in terms of the wider group, but I didn't see what I knew. And so I was standing there and my wife approached me out of the crowd and I'd never laid eyes on her before. And she said, are you at Condon? And I said, yes. And she said, well, I'm Rachel. And I said, nothing at all. Cause I'd never heard of her. And I said, okay. I said, well, I think we're here meeting the same people. And I said, Oh, I just kind of nodded. I was, I was a real smooth operator as you can tell. And sort of a moment passed. And then she sort of looked harder and said, well, are you going to get me a drink? And I said, right, immediately. And I went this off. Is how this works. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Right. Now I've understood. Yes. Sorry. Of course. Uh, I, I went and bought a large quantity of, uh, gin at the bar, and things went very well from there. Um, you know, we we had a we had a fairly quick courtship. We dated for, I think, nine months before we married, wow. and um, uh, I mean, we were talking about marriage. I mean, I, I'm always I'm always wary of sharing uh, this in in case people get the wrong idea, because um, I see on the twitters and stuff. Uh, I, I, I don't know that I would ever be able to get married today. If I was a young Catholic person today um, and, and seeing the sort of weird environment in which the current generation are growing up and, you know, everything is partially social media, partially real life. I don't, I don't know if I would have survived any of that, no. um, but this was a different time. This is when you had um, a Blackberry for work, if you had that kind of job, but otherwise you know, there was no Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. So I met my wife, as I said, you know, at a jazz concert with a bunch of friends, all of whom were Catholic and from different parishes around London. Um, and we, we dated. And after the third date, we were talking about marriage. And we, you know, I, I, I'd love to tell you that we had a very holy conversation um, that, you know, was couched in the language of discernment. And you know, prayerful reflection. But honestly, I think it, I, I think it was my wife who looked at me across the table after you know the third bottle of wine on one of our dates, and she said, with a heavy sigh, "This is it, isn't it?" And what do you mean? She says, "This is it." I mean, we're going to get married, aren't we? You know, almost with a tone of resignation. And she was right, and we did. And I mean, it was wonderful. Um, oh, we that had a holy a resignation. Exactly. Uh, and again, I, 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 I'm reticent about saying this because I don't want people who are in their middle 20s or early 20s or late 20s or whatever um, to, to hear this say, well, I should be talking about marriage on the third day. And it's like, no, that, no. that's just what happened and how much we had to drink that, you know, that I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, no. you, I have an appreciation uh, for how little of your personal life you do share in the social media sphere. I try um, and share none of it in the social media sphere. <laughs> so I, I appreciate you sharing it here in this, uh, this hobby podcast. Um, the, my wife and I on a similar token, uh, 
So when I went into seminary, dating apps didn't exist. Smartphones didn't exist. I came out of seminary. There are things like Tinder and Bumble and all the other various dating apps with which I signed up for immediately because I needed to throw myself uh, out there and see uh, what was available to me. One of the only rules I had was I would not date anybody uh, from uh, from which I had contact from any of the various uh, places I had been previously assigned because they knew me as Brother Adam and that's a little weird uh, personally. Um, so I met my wife here in Boston after I took a job working at a parish. And uh, funny enough, one of her great uncles was a former pastor of the parish that I worked at. Uh, so that was a fun uh, coincidence. But we had a wedding date, I think, uh, three or four months into dating uh, before we even had a ring and we had children's names picked out. So we we just knew. How <laughs> like, long have you been married? We've been married uh, two years next month. Wow. Uh, we we, we married... started picking out kids' names a, a few months after we got married, but that ended up being, um, we made ourselves hostages to fortune on that one. <laughs> we, uh, we got married on February 29th, 2020. We were on a cruise in the Caribbean uh, when the outbreak uh, in the U.S. started to take off and everything started to close down. So we came home and we missed the run on toilet paper. Uh, and I had to steal some from the parish offices because uh, <laughs> we had it in abundance and I, you know, paid them back for it. But, you know, it was a, an interesting time with which to get married and to find yourself on a four month, uh, five month going on two year honeymoon that hasn't yeah. uh, quite ended. Um, so I, I can understand, and she's a, a couple of years older than me. She's five years uh, my senior. And, um, you know, she's not, social media doesn't have Twitter. She has Instagram and Facebook, but doesn't, stays away from a large majority of it. So I can, I understand that I don't put everything out there. While I have a very outward facing uh, persona, she is the exact opposite. Uh, and, you know, I have a respect for that. And, so I thank you for sharing uh, a little bit about the personal side of things. And I also think that the Catholic dating sphere is just weird. Uh, you know, they're not, and I say this with all due love and affection for my brothers and sisters in Christ, but just be normal, be a person. Don't be robotic about it. And, you know, I don't know if this is God's will. God and you cooperate in making decisions. You can make a decision. And I feel like they don't know how to do that. And I, that is what causes a lot of yeah. uh, chaos in their own minds. I, I don't want to be generationally judgy or come across as curmudgeonly and old, but um, I guess that's kind of a shtick I've been saddled with. So I might as well stare into it. I wonder if that isn't just a wider generational problem or if that is particular to um, Catholics right now. I, I feel sometimes like, there is a, well, I, I, I feel like, and maybe this is just a function of people spending more of their lives sort of online and, and growing up with things like social media, that you feel like you need to be told what to do, or at least run it by a focus group of 10,000 random strangers on a website before you make a decision. Whereas, you know, when I was in college, I had four friends, maybe. And, you know, we'd run ideas by each other, usually after eight or nine pints on a Saturday. But, you know, that, that was about the full extent of my social circle. Um, Good and again, I, I don't too. know that I could take it these days. No, it's, uh, I do it for a, as a source of news to keep up with what's going on and now to share with uh, my former classmates and uh, everything else, the birth of our daughter and uh, sharing things like that. But, uh, and now sharing Wordle because I saw that it ticked some people off. So now I share Wordles every morning. 
uh, <laughs> not just you, some other, uh, some other people. So I have different. It doesn't uh, tick me off. I just, I, the, the thing is, it, it's one of those things where one person does it and you're like, well, fine. I mean, I, I personally, I mean, I do the thing in the morning. Why not? It's, it, it's, it's an fun. easy 30 second way to wake up and, you know, to, to get your brain in gear in the morning. But I, it's never occurred to me to hit the share button at the end, but I mean, you know, you see, you see one or two people do it. You're like, it doesn't even, but you know, when you wake up in the morning, you just want to see what's happened before you woke up and it's 30 people in a row posting a series of screenshots of colored blocks. And it's like, Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And there's something in me. I just, it, it makes me want to ruin the fun. I don't know why I there, There's something there's certain, wrong with me. There's it's original sin. Great yeah, part it, of you. you know, it's, it's, it's original it's okay. sin living in me. I, do, I don't want I don't want to do I, I, I long, I long for the good, but I find myself doing the very thing I don't want to, you know, or some variation on St. Paul there. Uh, yeah, it's a good, I feel like a good reflex to have because it keeps us all humbled to a certain extent uh, and keeps us very well grounded. Um, the a couple other points I wanted to uh, touch on. The first of all, going way back to the beginning part of your conversation, you were talking about you were part of a young adult group in Chicago that really sort of flipped that little. Uh, this was in London. Were, I I moved London, to London when I was me. I moved to London when I was nine. Ah, yeah. No, I spent okay. the vast majority of my life in, living in the UK. Okay, my mistake, and um. So as far as the young adult catechesis that was beneficial for you, it's something I'm trying to start uh, in our parish now. Something very simple and it took a lot of hard work and coaxing of the pastor and uh, chief of staff to do because they didn't want to petition the diocese to get a waiver for a one day liquor license. I said, if you want the young people to come, the young adults, you need the gimmick of booze. (laughs) <laughs> they will come for booze, I promise you. Uh, but they wouldn't do that. So now we do just a simple uh, 45 minutes of adoration and rosary. And then we go to a local pub where we share a meal and a couple of drinks and get to know each other. And the last one that we had, uh, my wife uh, joined me, uh, took our daughter with her and two other uh, um, a young married couple from the parish also brought their daughter with them Uh so it was nice to have babies there, but also to have single young Catholics looking at that and having those two sort of realms come together and say, we're all young adults. We can share in the mission here of this church. And how can the church serve you, the young adults? Which leads to a long way of leading to my question on uh, the synod on synodality and how it's kind of a curveball and how I see it because I don't quite understand it, but I feel like it's looking or at least playing out in my parish as how do we get everyone to have a voice in the church while simultaneously uh, maintaining the orders of uh, the clergy and the laity and keeping them in their own pride of place without upending the system. I feel like there's a delicate ballet that has to be played out and I'm not sure if we shouldn't just hit the control alt delete and start anew on Sundays. That's what my inner devil in uh, you know original sin uh, plays in my ear from time to time. Well, I um, I mean starting from the law, <laughs> starting from the law, which is always my my reflexes. Um, the concept of a synod is is a fairly simple one, but it's also legally in the church a very ancient and a very clear one. And and the defining characteristic of a synodal process is one that takes place in, within the hierarchy of the church. It takes place under a hierarchy, that it is a consultative exercise under the hierarchy that constitutes it. And so, um, you know, the diocesan level, it's under the diocesan bishop. At the level of the synod of bishops in Rome, it's a sort of smattering of bishops from around the world um, gathered together by and under the Pope. And this global synodal process is, at least according to the mind of the church, as it is written down, and again, this is how I always start by evaluating the the practicability or the, or the utility of things like this, 
is to sort of say, well, here's what the church says such a thing is supposed to do. If the church says that, you know, what we're having is a duck, does it waddle? Does it quack? Does it have feathers? Um, and I think what we're seeing in a global synodal process here is we're, we're seeing really um, a lot of different things happening at once. Some of them I think are very synodal and some of them I think are nothing like. So um, I think in some places that you've seen true synodality happening. You've had um, dioceses where they've said, look, get your parish together, have parish meetings, meet under the pastor and have parish meetings and talk about what are the priorities, what are the questions, what are the, you know, the unspoken problems in your parish community, and then feed that back up to the level of the diocese. And at the level of the diocese, you have, you know, the, the, the same sort of session, the same sort of idea, and then that is fed up by the diocesan bishop into national or regional level, which then goes to room. That, that is a very authentic synodal process. I question the um, how wieldy, how productive a process like this can be when it is totally unfocused, which it is by design. You know, the Pope has been very clear. This isn't a meeting about meetings, but it is a process about the process, that the output is not apparently so important to the Pope as that we all just get used to riding this bike. And we'll worry about where we're going with it next time. But the purpose of this is to basically, at the global level, ride the synodal bike around the block a few times to get our balance on it. That so seems this is to be... spring training, sort of, yeah. to figure things out. Exactly. I, 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 that, that at least is how I've understood what the Holy Father wants to have happen with this thing. Um, I, but I don't think there's any question that in other places, this is being treated as, aha, it's a free-for-all moment. We can do what we like. We can say what we want. Everyone has a voice, which means you have to listen to me. And so, for example, I was reading, and I've got a, it's going to be a late one tonight, but I'm, I'm going to write about this a little bit in my newsletter for tomorrow. Um, you know, there have been groups that are opposed to church teaching on a range of issues that have said they want to participate in the synodal process. And they've been told by this, and you know, there is a place for everyone to participate in the synodal process and the synod secretary in Rome has been clear that they want the process to engage with lapsed Catholics, disaffected Catholics, people. The, and, and I don't see anything wrong with that because again, if you know, the, the idea of a synodal process that is hopefully um, not just listening, because I, I'm always, I, my, my number one sort of alarm bell is when you hear someone in the church, be it a priest, a bishop, or a cardinal, whoever, who says, you know, well, no, I, I don't have anything to say. I want to listen. I just want to say, that's fine. By all means, listen. But if you don't know what you're going to say at the end of that in response, and if what you're going to say at the end of that in response isn't the kerygma, isn't the announcement of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you're in the wrong gig. And so I get very worried about a process that's all about listening and not about response. And, and I've seen in a number of places what seems to me to be, no, this is all about telling the church how she needs to change. And that's, you know, if that's what these people want to use their opportunity to speak to say, so be it. But it has to be made clear that at the end of this, the church uses what it's heard to understand better how it needs to evangelize these people because there's something lacking in their lives. And what is lacking is Christ and the faith and the church. And how can the church best answer that lack and serve them through the evangelization? That is authentic synodality as far as I'm concerned. But what concerns me a little bit is when you see, yeah, and you know, some of these groups, and I've, I've read their sort of material, that the synodal secretariat has, you know, posted on their resource page and stuff, and it's generated some controversy. And, you know, um, a lot of it is, even if it comes from groups that have stated aims and beliefs that are against the teaching of the church in one way or another. Most of the stuff that the synod secretary is linked to is, I would say, neutral. It is a, it is a fair, more or less accurate, more or less presentation of what the synodal process is for people to read, understand, and then engage with. And I don't have you know, a huge problem with that. I think it's a questionable wisdom and possible scandal for an official organ of the church to be linking to organizations that explicitly opposed church teaching. 
Um, but in terms of the content of specific documents, I haven't found much that I, I've said, well, this is problematic. But I did find one where it seemed to be basically a manual on how to quote unquote engage with the synod, but it was in almost in terms of how to subvert the synodal process. That if the that if a synodal process is, as I was saying, legally in the mind of the church, a process convened under authority, convened in communion with a particular pole of authority, the diocesan bishop. And then the material that is being published as a sort of handbook, guidebook for an organization to engage that is all about explicitly how to circumvent the bishop and make sure, you know, that's, that's an anti-synodal stance. That's not synodality. That, that is stepping up. It's very problematic, but more importantly, it's against the, the very concept of what a synod and synodality can be, which is learning, to, learning for us all to inhabit better the communion of the church as assemblies of people, as, uh, as lay people, as clergy, as bishops, that you know, how do we interrelate in this church? How do we speak to each other as a family? If one of the groups participating is basically saying, well, the proper way to engage with each other as a family is to make sure we cut dad out of the conversation. That's not, that's not an authentic or functional <laughs> way of participating. It almost reminds me a little bit of a story of, uh, Don Bosco, when he was approved to start his religious order, the Salesians, he gave his rule of life to uh, one of the congregations in Rome to get this, the stamp to say, yes, okay, go and print this. Well, he took the uh, letter of acceptance from one book, put it into another book and said, okay, print this. And he gave them the other book. And it's like, well, hold on. This is, uh, again, the, so it's, a little a, bit it's a flexible maneuver. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. Um, but in trying to understand all this, that's a little bit uh, more helpful is trying to learn how to ride the bike so that we can ride the bike later on uh, down the road and try to hear everybody. But also one of the things that I think as one who has been teaching in the church now for a better part of 10 years, the charisma is something that is extremely lacking. Uh, both in uh, homilies and in the religious ed uh, Sunday school classrooms. And I think uh, when we have our little parish meetings, I think I will be talking ad nauseum about the charisma and its necessity to make a comeback within uh, our parish life, but also I think in the greater life of the church because there are not enough people have an understanding of what that is. I, I I count my own life experiences first among that. You know, as I was saying, I I grew up in a culturally Catholic context. I grew up in a Catholic family. I went to mass every Sunday, but I was, you know, sixteen before I had the charisma announced to me. I was sixteen before I understood what the actual good news that the church proclaims is. You know, I no one had ever told me that before. For we're, me yeah, we're, we're, we're still very good, I think, and this is a holdover from a previous era where, where how Catholic families and Catholic communities functioned was, was very different and how they were composed was very different demographically. Um, but we're very good at catechetics in places, but we're very, very bad at evangelization internally, as mm -hmm. perhaps as well as externally. But this is, you know, um, and I, I think this is something that has you know, a lot to do with how we can rethink parish life uh, in, in, in our diocese right now, and also in parish schools, you know, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of um, teachers think of themselves as catechists, and rightly so. I wonder how many of them consciously think of themselves as having responsibility to evangelize their students. And I wonder how many would actually feel uncomfortable with the idea, would wonder, you know, is, is that my place? Is that, you know, is that what I'm supposed to be doing? And I think if, um, I think a good sort of health check for Catholic institutions is if someone in the institution is saying, I'm not sure if it's my job or my place to be an evangelist here, to announce the charisma here, then that's the problem because the answer is every Catholic, every job, everywhere in every room to every person is supposed to be an evangelist is supposed to be announcing the charisma that as far as I'm concerned, that, that, should be the beginning and end of every conversation, every human interaction, as much as possible. As much as possible. Well, I thank you uh, for taking the time here uh, to talk to me. And I know you still have uh, a lot of work to do to get your newsletter out uh, for tomorrow. And I assume that you do that before you go to bed. And I don't want you, if your wife is anything 
like mine, uh, we like to go to bed roughly around the same time. Uh, we, I just put the our little one down uh, before we started recording her bath, her bottle, her bedtime story and put her into the bassinet next to the bed. Uh, so I don't want to keep you for too long. And I thank you uh, very much for your time. I, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Thank you.